What's on the silver screen? I got some takes you wouldn't believe. Hello and welcome to Popmosis Film, the podcast that dares to ask the question, what would happen if a writer, a critic, and a fan walked into a bar? The answer is, what's the answer, guys? Um, uh, Looney Tunes? Tiny Tunes. I was going to say, Freaking I was going to say nothing because we can't go in a bar right now. So oh, we have to stay <laughs> home. So. We can order takeout. <laughs> we walk into, we walk into a <laughs> Skype call. We walk into a Skype bar. And so we are the podcast that takes our unique perspectives and just talks about film. Today we're going to talk about one of my personal favorite films from my childhood and see how it holds up as an adult. It is as old as I am released on December 17th, 1982. I was not released on December 17th. The film was, I was released on March 2nd, but 1982. And we are happy to have with us as always. Paul, this is a, I love movies and whatnot. And there you go. Darn straight. <laughs> and this is Tyler, um, uh, you know, head of GGG and, uh, and, and crying in the shower. <laughs> oh, man. I'm having a time with this quarantine. Uh, this is a bad episode already. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it's the dark crystal, and we're going some dark places. Yeah. But we were thrilled to have with us again. So, on our, we did an episode with um, our friend Sam Hale, and Sam is here again to talk about the dark crystal. He talked about his film, Yamasong, and well, I'm sure we'll bring up the parallels there again as we kind of brought it up when we talked about that film. But we're happy to have Sam. So, Sam, say hello. Hi, everybody. Sam Hale, Sam Koji Hale, and I'm a filmmaker and I work with puppets. And Sam is our first guest, and now he's our first repeat guest. So how about that? Go, Sam. So The Dark Crystal, uh, as, I, as I like to do when we do films like this, is just give you a little bit of background. So the release date, it was directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz, even though the credits do say a Jim Henson film. They both co-directed it. It is written by Henson with David O'Dell. Uh, David O'Dell wrote a lot of um, uh, Muppet stuff before this and some bad 80s movies like Supergirl and one that I love, Masters of the Universe, which Masters of the Universe is the movie that made me want to start a podcast. Paul and I talked about that. We're going to do that movie eventually. It's produced by Gary Kurtz, which is kind of like uh, he did this instead of Return of the Jedi basically, if you think about it. And then um, the, the conceptual designer is Brian Froud, and I'm sure, sure we'll talk about Brian a lot. The, the film uh, earned $41 million at the box office. On, I'm getting conflicting numbers for budgets. I saw one thing that said 15 million, one that said 25 million. So somewhere between 15 and 30 million dollars, I'm assuming, for the budget on this film in 1982. And that is our sort of introduction to um, the Dark Crystal. So we're going to just, what I like to do when I kind of guide these things is go through the uh, as a writer, sort of by plot points, but feel free to jump around, guys, as we do. But it sort of starts off very intense with this narration setting up the world that we're in. And I think that's important for a fantasy film like this where you're sort of world building. What do you guys think about that? You know, it kind of reminds me of the narration in Road Warrior, like the boomerang kid, you know? Like the voice is very similar and like almost like you're telling, a, you know, a, fan, a, a legend of – you know, the Gelflings and the uh, Skeksis and all that. So it's very, I don't know, it, it kind of gave me that Road Warrior vibe in that sense. Yeah, to me, I think it, it feels like, you know, it's almost like traditional storytelling. You know, the storyteller sits down and says, a long time ago, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's interesting saying long time ago, when you think of Star Wars, Star Wars never gets into a lot of deep storytelling. I think it kind of, Star Wars lets you experience the world and, and start to discover it as you go, where... 
I think Dark Crystal kind of spells out everything and then lets you go after the first 10 minutes or whatever. But um, yeah, with Yamasong, you know, I, I originally, when I set up my feature film, Yamasong March of the Hollows, it was really just dropping you into the world and going, you know. And then the producers came back and said, no, no, we need to do some narration. And I know the the new Dark Crystal also has some kind of significant narration in the beginning with Sigourney Weaver's voice to set up the whole universe. So um, I think that's that's kind of the school one school of thought is to kind of give you everything because you don't know the, these worlds from, you know, from anything. And you have to have to be introduced to it first before you jump in. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I found this movie, yeah, definitely um, transition central. Uh, <laughs> Dark Crystal, I mean, it, it definitely was um, definitely one of those fantasy films that I'm not used to, like, watching old stuff like Jason the Argonauts and, like, and then even, like, to, like, newer fantasy that just kind of just drops you and it's like, you either get it or you don't, but we're going to keep going. Like, Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter, where it's just like there's a little bit of context yeah. and then they just go wild. But uh Dark Crystal was definitely something I am not too uh used to, but my love of the Henson company, I think, uh, makes me a little bit more biased. But um, you know, I grew up with this movie watching it hundreds and hundreds of times and I haven't watched it in like thirteen years and now watching it, it is a completely different um com- <laughs> completely uh, you know, just just different experience. And I I'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. This is actually my first time. Storytelling, storytelling's evolved, you know, or changed. Uh, people are have shorter attention spans, and I think you, a lot of movies now, you you drop people into the action and you go, you know. Yeah. It's not a lot of setup. Absolutely. Go ahead, Paul. Go ahead, oh, Paul. Uh, this is actually my first time watching uh, Dark Crystal. I, I never saw it as a kid. Oh, wow. And uh, I always was kind of scared of the character designs for some reason, so I never saw it <laughs> as a kid. I saw it today, and... The surprising thing is, like, how terrifying it is. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, it is. It really is. Like, 12-year-old, I don't know, like, 8-year-old me watching, like, the Emperor die and turn into dust and fade away. Or, like, Kira being strapped to a chair with, like, red yeah. rays being shot in her face. Like, yeah. Gexies in general things. are terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, the Skeksis like are... Like, their dinner sequence? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's... So and, uh, those are the things that stick out in my 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 kid memory are all of the like the visceral terrifying moments you know none of, none of the beauty and the the world building it's all you know you know Kira being stabbed or or uh, or the the Chamberlain basically being raped having all his clothes ripped off of him you know yeah oh, yeah. yeah like that uh, sequence oh my lord yeah it's, watching it's, it I, like I'm watching it with my three year old daughter and I'm like I'm a bad parent right now yeah like, like well, <laughs> should yeah. not be in the room for this and then you start thinking about your parents and you're like why did my parents let me watch this <laughs> yeah my like yeah okay and like I'm a bad parent but they were worse <laughs> yeah yeah and see that's the thing. One thing that I, I really appreciate about older films like this and uh, is that they trusted children with scary things, like scary themes and more adult material, and they didn't really like talk down to them yeah. in a way that I think a lot of you know uh, animation and a lot of uh, children's films do nowadays. And so I totally respect that that they like trust you know kids with, with like really heady like dark material. Um, and, 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 you know, don't talk down to them. 
And uh, it kind of reminds me of like Return to Oz, yeah, a little bit. Oh God! Also, this is a very similar tone. Well, I, uh, well, I mean, that was also a Henson, like, like, like you know, with the the Henson's basically uh, the Henson Company designed almost everybody in that thing. I mean, that was a Disney film, yeah. but deeply partnered with like you know, it's kind of like TMNT where they just kind of design like every, like all the characters and stuff. But um, like I'm. Yeah. The bicycle people. Oh my god! The wheelers. Those, of, those things. Those guys. Yeah, don't wheelers. even get me started on the wheelers, man. Don't even get me started on the wheelers. Um, There's like, like one queen that takes her head off yeah. and like has a bunch, like all these heads. Yeah. Like it, oh. it jars. That movie gave me so many nightmares. And I, but but I think with like Dark Crystal, if I remember correctly, it was targeted for 13 year olds. It's just they didn't have PG 13 back then. Is it or am I, am I incorrect about that? I know I've heard Jim Henson say, Henson. I've heard Henson say before that he like he understands and he thinks he like you know he believes he knows children want to be scared a little bit. The the like Grimm's fairy tales, those kind of things. Those are for children. There's a level of scariness even in Disney, particularly oh, earlier absolutely. Disney. It's it's it when it's dark, it's scary. So that then when that payoff, when the good things, it it means so much more. And uh, Henson has said that where the kids want to be scared a little bit. Yeah. And for example, just think about it when I'm holding my, 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 my six month old and I kind of give her that little like fake drop and she like that, that scared face, but then she yeah. giggles. That's that thing. It's a fundamental thing that we have where you like, yeah. you want to be like, you know, titillated a little in that way, scared a little bit, not too much, just the right yeah. amount of scary. I mean, that's, that's, why, have, that's why people like horror movies, you know, uh, Sam, what were you saying though? Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, I, I, I think that's true. I think that, um, you know, when, when you take your character through a journey, if it's a, if it's a, a deeper drop, you know, they're, they're in, they're in real peril, they're in real danger. You don't know if they'll survive or not. And then they come out and they've, they've succeeded. They've triumphed. They're in a, a much bigger, their, their success is a much more enriching or rewarding success yeah. instead of it being, you know, a story told with kid gloves on all the way through and you don't see any of the low lows because people are afraid that the audience is going to be scared or whatever. You know, that's I'd rather tell a story where your character does almost die or does go to the, the, the verge of insanity, but then crawls back yeah. to be, you know, to be the hero. I mean, I mean, that that's like every Pixar movie. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just the characters that we're meeting at the beginning of the film just kind of get caught up. We have the harsh alien Skeksis and we have the, the earthy sort of gentle, like smooth mystics. Like the, watching this film again, one thing I really paid attention to was kind of thinking about the puppetry more. Just the way the movement in those two creatures really reflects everything about them. The Skeksis are like jerky and kind of like, ah, ah, ah. and the mystics are like, mm, just smooth and like the rolling motion to it. It's just like, I, I'm pretty how, sure, like. I'm- I'm pretty sure those are the uh, those are the sound effects of like when Jim Henson was pitching it to Frank Oz, <laughs> like and ooh ooh, and Frank, and Frank Oz is like, I love it. Let's make it. <laughs> Let's make that movie. That's what got yeah. When I was watching, I, I think the mystics are the hippies of the world. You know, yeah. They're 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 making sand paintings, and even the the valley they live in looks like a bunch of piled up rocks. Like if you go down to Malibu. Or down to Venice, <laughs> you've got the the long-haired hippie guy who's like piling rocks on top of each other. That's that's your mystics right there, you know. <laughs> Agreed. But, and it's funny because I was watching a behind the scenes on this, like a from the time from the '80s, the making of the Dark Crystal. The I forget the name of it. It's somewhere in my notes if I if I come across it. But 
Jim Henson was talking about actually having, you know, every, we all think of Jim Henson as the gentle Jim Henson. He was actually talking about having like a little bit of Skeksis in him and that sort of darker side and yeah. that come like, get this done, do that. Like, and he was talking about that side of it, which really surprised me thinking about like, you know, no, Jim Henson, you're the, you're the teddy bear one, not the mean one. So just the, the kid me, <laughs> you know, shattering yeah. the illusions of the way I, mean, I viewed my childhood. Jim Henson really cared about stories. And from what I, what I've been told, um, in my own research, because I, I'm a huge uh, Jim Henson company, like in Brian Henson, like fanboy, um, you know, he, he really cared about this at Labyrinth, really becoming, really uh, standing the test of time. You know, unfortunately, Mirror Mask didn't do, do as well or di- didn't do as, uh, you know, wasn't as impactful. I still think it's good, but I, uh, he definitely put so much into it and, you know, his, you know, like, and try to be part of these worlds that he was creating. You know, because he, he was a creator. He wanted it. He was like, if it, if it wasn't believable for him, then like, you know, then what's the point? And so he made it very believable and he put a lot of himself into it. And I think Frank Oz is the exact same as well. Yeah, I think Jim Henson was, um, he was, I mean, he was passionate about all of his projects. And, and um, you know, if, if the idea was strong enough, you know, he wouldn't even, he wouldn't hesitate to put his own money into it. Yeah. Uh, talking talking to Heather, you know, she's, we're actually doing right now, I'm a producer for her short film series and we're doing uh, our, our first mini documentary. We're following the life of the puppeteer around his, his, you know, his world. And she was telling me about how his, her dad did that for, I think world of Jim Henson, where he interviewed some of the prominent puppeteers at the time. And she said, you know, none of the studios wanted to pay for it. So he paid for it himself. He flew his own crews over to, to France or Australia to interview, you know, the, the, the premier puppeteers of that day so that he could make the show that he really wanted to make. And, um, that's, that's something I think is pretty remarkable to say, because most studios I think are more worried about spending money and, and not doing projects unless they, they can do it on, on the dime, you know? Yeah, yeah um, absolutely. This was a passion was, it was driven by the passion first. And, and the cool thing is like, you know, unfortunately he's no longer with us, but like the cool thing about that stuff is now it's like, there is, actual like you know like financing for projects like that because of special features and stuff like either it'd be you know digital you know or like on blu-ray or you know even like you know buy something on itunes sometimes you get the special features with it so like now it's we get all that interesting stuff which is awesome and i love that and i know disney plus does that now where there's certain movies that have uh, there's deleted scenes there's uh, commentary tracks on the streaming services now so like yeah. These platforms, because that was what was great about DVD in the late '90s, early 2000s. You, yeah. All those, all those things that, like, you know, growing up in the '80s and through the early '90s, you would have to fight to find those making ofs, to like to find it on video at a you know video store, find it on television at a random time. The how they did the special effects in films like this, and now that we have platforms that these things can be readily available. One of the coolest things about the new Dark Crystal show for me was the behind the scenes making of that show that you could see how they made that show. That documentary was as interesting to me as the whole series was. Yeah. And it's a long documentary, isn't it? Like two or three hours. It's, it's like, yeah, movie. it's like a feature. It's like a feature. Yeah. yeah. I love that stuff too. I don't know if you remember, there was a show called lights, camera action, uh, hosted by yes. Leonard Nimoy. And yes. he would break down, I think one or two movies and go behind the scenes. I remember like seeing like Brazil and the, the plastic surgery scene and, uh, things like that. I I just loved all that. Like, how did they make it? You know, I think Josiah, and I, you and I talked about how 
you know, they had the making of Return of the Jedi. And that's that's where I got into blue screen and green screen and the, the speeder bike chase and how they made that real by shooting, you know, the, the characters on the speeder bike. And, you know, they use miniatures and they use live action and green screen and all that. And I just love all that stuff. And Dark Crystal yeah. is like it's the ultimate for, for all that because everything is like like we say in puppets, everything's a, a special effect shot. Yeah, and it's one of the last films, like, this and Blade Runner are kind of the, and there's probably a few other 80s movies, but for, in my mind, those are kind of the last two true, like, in-camera special effects films as, yeah. you know, digital. Because when you think about what last Starfighter came in the mid-80s, the transition to digital, like, that was very, very early, obviously, for the effects, but it's it's going that direction, whether, you know, eventually it's going to be what it's yeah. going to be. In this film, it's uh, you know the the painted the painted matte backgrounds and things like that, and it gives a beauty to it that doesn't exist in film. Obviously, digital matte backgrounding, with it, Sam can speak to that. It's a it's a fantastic thing, but it's kind of cool to see a, like the good old days too, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you know, I'm I'm, I'm watching, I'm playing Dark Crystal in the background as we're talking about it, just watching it and looking at you know all of the the animatronics and the faces, and you know there's one performer inside the body of the Skeksis. And, you know, the only way they see is they have a monitor around their neck that's hanging down like Big Bird. That same technology, how they did Big Bird, is what they use for the Skeksis. And the performer's looking at the monitor as they're performing. Uh, interesting side note, talking to some of my friends who worked on the new Dark Crystal, they, um, they expanded the monitor system where instead of the puppeteer looking at one monitor feed, they were getting four monitor feeds, the three cameras plus a camera that's built in the head of the Skeksi. Oh, so cool. that they have four monitors in front of them as they're performing. For me personally, I'd be like, that would be sensory overload. If you're trying to perform <laughs> your puppet and watch four different feeds of different camera angles. And so I asked Kevin clash, who was, you know, one of, one of the, he is, you know, formerly Elmo, but he's been with Henson's for years. I asked Kevin clash, you know, did you, do you look at all four monitors all the time? And he's like, no, no, no. You just, you pick the one that works best for you. Get your sight line right, yeah. And you just look at that one. But I guess you have choices of four different angles now. You know. Uh, speaking really quickly, the Kevin Clash. Kevin Clash actually didn't do this film. Henson offered him, but he was like doing a network show or something at the time. It's in his documentary, right. Being Elmo, yeah. and he turned it down. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting that he turned it down, but then eventually got to do it. I think he was Agra in the new one. I think he puppeteered Agra in probably yeah. some other stuff, but I believe that was like in his main role in terms of puppeteering. Um, so just quickly kind of backing into the story a little bit to get a context for where we're at. Jen uh, is a Gelfling. We meet him naked by the water. And he that's one of the moments that I always took me out of the film when you see the full naked Jen, where it's kind of like it looks like a toy or action figure. Yeah. And it's a, such an interesting choice to show him that way first, because it's the most to me, the most fake looking he can possibly be. Um, uh -huh. what, what are your thoughts on that, Sam? Like that shot? Like. Yeah, you know, I it, I think it's the way he moves. It just feels like he's a he's a mannequin kind of, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but I I always feel like this to me this opening shot of him by the water is essentially the kind of a callback to Kermit on the boat in the swamp. You know, yes. your main character is there, surrounded by nature, and he's playing an instrument. This is the Kermit version in the Dark Crystal world. This is how I've I've always looked at it that way. Cool. I've never, I never saw that parallel, but now like, oh, it's so obvious. How did I not think of that? Totally. So Jen, so Jen's mentor, 
his master passes away and he has to then find a shard of the crystal and bring the world back. So that kind of is what propels the story forward. So you kind of, that's where really the story starts once the, his mentor, then his master passes away. So go ahead, Paul. Oh, I, I just want to say about that scene with, um, Janet, the, the pool, naked by the pool. I thought, uh, you know, bless your hippie heart, Jim Henson, for including something like that in there in the first couple <laughs> minutes. You know, I thought yeah. it was a wonderful touch, you know. It's very much his Well, yeah, because, like, it's one of those things that doesn't hold up for me, and it never did. And, and it, uh, it's funny, that because even as a kid, I thought that looks like a toy. But it's it's yeah. it's also so, so bold, because that's how you start out. And I think what it, it's weird where it at once takes me out but it, it, of, of the sort of the world, but at the same time, it makes it very real and a natural way to show it. And then, and, but now thinking of what Sam said with the Kermit parallel, I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's, it's so like, I see it now. I can't believe I didn't see this sooner than that. So. And then another thing, I think also maybe if you want to break it down, let's say symbolically, you meet your main character and his most kind of vulnerable way. He's without clothes. He's naked, surrounded by nature. And you're starting from that, very sincere, vulnerable place, and then building up the character from there. So let's talk about the Skeksis, which is the, uh, so uh, quickly, Paul and I went and saw the Henson exhibit with uh, my wife, Judy, and my then only one daughter, Penny. Now we have a second one, Primrose. But Paul, Penny, and myself and Judy saw the Henson exhibit. And that's when I found out, we're walking around, and you could kind of, it goes through his films, kind of uh, his work chronologically. It starts with a Kermit, and then it goes to like his stuff he's done it as a kid. Wait, it starts with Kermit, not Rolf? Well, it starts with Kermit as like the the centerpiece puppet, not necessarily chronologically, but that's just like the centerpiece. And then Sorry. it goes back in time to Rolf and even things before Rolf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, so you go through that and then you go to Sesame Street, you go to the Muppets, on and on and on. And you wrap around to, you know, you basically get into the 80s and the Dark Crystal is there. And they have this, they had Agra and they had a massive Skeksis. They had the Chamberlain. And I'm standing there looking at it and it was, I'd seen the behind the scenes. But when you see it in person, like, this thing is big. That's yeah. a big puppet. Yeah. It's bigger than yeah. a person. And Paul, that's when I found out Paul hadn't seen it. And I'm like, how have you not seen this movie? Look at this thing right here. How have you not seen this movie? So let's talk about, let's talk about. And like Paul's like, reason number one, look. <laughs> I know, I realize that. As I say that, I'm like, well, it's pretty obvious why you haven't seen how, it. How have you not seen this movie with this terrifying monster when you were six years old? I mean, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and the funny thing is, when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Look at that. Look at the craftsmanship on that. This is awesome. And, like, Josiah was on the verge of tears seeing that. He was, like, getting really emotional. I would, and I was too. Like, I was like, oh, that's that's cool. Like, but it's See, funny to just post both of our um, reactions to that one thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm you know, there. You know, that was – it was a – go ahead, Sam. I was just going to say it's, you know, part of, part of the Henson signature, I think, is that, you know, uh, from Sesame Street on, you have these different scales. So you've got really small puppets all the way up to Big Bird or – in the dark crystal world, you've got the pod podlings to the Gelfling to the Skeksis that are all different yeah. scales. And then they carry that through Fraggle Rock is, is kind of, I think a hallmark of what Henson was doing, which I think is, is, is showing you you're creating worlds. And in these worlds, these creatures are not all the same size. Yeah. You know, you've got giants, you've got little people, you've got it all. Going back to something Sam said on our previous podcast, so listen to our Yamasan episode with uh, Sam. He talked about the depth of the frame, and now that I hear that, it's 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 cool how Henson and they built in a way to fill that frame with puppets of different sizes. 
So you have different scales of puppets and then it creates that world and not just the world, but the frame is full. When you have a little puppet in the foreground and then this tall Skeksis in the background kind of thing, things like that, that, you know, I don't, as a, as a sort of the writer storyteller, not necessarily the most, I'm a, I'm a visual person too, but not in that sense, not framing the shot visual. It kind of like, Oh, I see how those wheels are turning and working and, you know, someone like Jim Henson or someone like Sam in your mind. So. Yeah. Go ahead, Tyler. Just, I, Watching it again, I didn't realize just how many podlings are walking around there, you know, and all the sketchy scenes. You've got the slaves in different places, either, you know, bringing the food or in the big opening scene. They're often, if you look up in the rafters, basically, you see these characters in the shadows. You don't know what they are, but you know there are these other creatures kind of wandering around in this otherwise, you know, world dominated by the Skeksis. And, and then uh, there, so, yeah, there, there, all, all there's sides. a scale... There's a scale below that size, too. So you have the scale of the little creatures and critters that are sort of populating like the forest floor. And then even in the bowels of the castle, there's like little things going around. So it's like just it, I think that motion helps make the world more real. It's like, you know, I'm in the garage. We're recording this by default. And we had an issue with a mouse in here, you know, that little mouse versus my daughter who's the next scale up. She's the podling. Then on up to me, who. I hope I'm a Gelfling and not a Skeksis, but, you know, in terms of scale, but just how the, the that fills up that world, you know? Yeah, yeah. So getting back into the story, there's sort of the this the, the fantasy type of race against time where there's going to be a convergence of three sons and he has to get the crystal and put it back in. So um, uh, one more thing I want to say about the Skeksis, originally – they were not speaking English. I don't think, I don't know if the mystics were going to speak not another language as well, but they actually shot it with them, like speaking like this terrifying babble. So imagine it where you can't understand what those monsters are saying. So it would be even more terrifying. And I think that was the intention, but Henson kind of went back and realized that's a little bit confusing. So they made their dialogue into English instead. So they backtracked on that. Is that why we so, got like, a, is that why we have a bunch of, <laughs> oh. That was one no, thing. That. that was well, one thing. I, our next guest, the Chamberlain. That's, <laughs> that's one thing I wish, like I, I could have done a little bit less with was that noise in that movie. <laughs> and I think the same thing about Yoda when he makes his whatever that noise yeah. is. But by the way, I love that like Black Panther esque like sword fight, you know that they uh, had, and then yeah. one of them like. Chop, try to chop down the rock, and then the other one was able to do it. And like this guy's new emperor, he chopped oh, that rock uh, down. The trial by stone. The trial by stone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was yeah. a nice touch. But uh, yeah, I remember the Black Panther a lot, like Killmonger and um, T'Challa. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Oh, with, yeah, with, with a, a lot less scars. Trial of strength. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> with a lot less psychological scars. That after watching it, or more with the Dark Crystal, more psychological you know, stars. I, I I do like this film. It has a special place in my heart. Um, I I, I you know I will say this. I, I'll say this like a parent. I love this film. I may not just like it. Um, <laughs> like like I think it's yeah. it's very important. It, it it's it's great looking, and I have some wonderful memories. And I know it's a great film. But going back and watching it, maybe it's because I wasn't in the mood. Like uh, you know um. But like it, it, it is kind of hard to watch. I, I really loved it, and I kind of um, I don't know if this is one of those movies. Like I, I feel like if you 
aren't into heavy fantasy and older older fantasy, you know, you had not seen this movie before, I don't know if I would recommend it. And now I want to know you, Paul, what do you think about seeing this movie for the first time being in your 30s? Oh, man. Okay. So I'll say that I really admire the earnestness and sincerity of, of this movie. Um, and the puppetry is absolutely amazing. Yeah. And it's obviously a labor of love. Um, and it's a, like a passion project, basically. Like, it's like you could see all the world building and, and just how much he loved the characters and how much he loved the story. Um, and so I felt kind of guilty in that I didn't really like the movie. <laughs> So, that much and i couldn't really follow along with it um do you feel and, do you feel kind of like how i'm feeling like like this is a good film like i understand why people love this i understand why i loved it but the thing is is that like now watching it and living this like you know you don't like it <laughs> yeah I, I mean i completely understand why people love it you know and why it's almost like why people are so passionate about it and why so, you know they would make a netflix show I can understand why um, why that would be the case because it's so sincere, and yeah. you know, in the in our age, like where there's like so many different blockbusters nowadays that are just so like shitty, just absolute like insincere garbage, yeah. and you have this thing that's really like unique and pure, and so I really admired it in that respect. Yeah, but again, I didn't see it when I was a kid. I mean, I knew of it, but. It didn't have I don't the have that emotional attachment, yeah. You know, as, as I did, uh, as and so um, I, again, I admire the movie. I think it's uh, you know a great film in its own right, but I didn't like it, and I I honestly felt bad that I didn't like it yeah. as much as I because he knows have. I love this movie. Paul's oh yeah, I, I know. Just, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I and and I I feel the same way. However, like I said before, I did grow up with this movie and I did love it. So in my memories, I love this film and I like it a lot. Me now watching it, I am glad it exists. I'm glad I got to watch it. I'm glad I grew up with it. But again, like most '90s or most movies I grew up with, um, I probably should have left them there, like Space Jam. Hook and a few other things, um, you know, Good yeah. Burger and stuff well, like that. Well, this is no Space Jam. Space Jam, I mean. Oh, absolutely not. It's no, absolutely a different not. kind of film. But anyway, because like, let's think about the 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 historical significance of this film. So it did not do that well at the time. It made money, but it wasn't really a hit by any means. It wasn't like it was kind of became a cult film, and it was it critically it was very divisive at best. It wasn't like greatly admired. Uh, so it wasn't. Like your reaction to it was the, the Paul's reaction. That was kind of the reaction of the time too, because it was significant. It was the first full puppet film. There are uh, shots with people in it, but those are you know when you have. There's some great shots where I really love watching it this time because I was watching it with that puppetry in mind, where you'll have a puppet in the foreground and then a you know a human actor in the background that creates that depth of movement in the shot. That you know you'll have the hand puppet version in the foreground and then that full human in the background, and it just really fleshed out the world that much more but i understand watching it it definitely first of all tonally it's like it's not even an 80s movie it's like a 70s movie the yeah. way it moves it's like it's it's just it it drags along in some ways so yeah i i think i think it could use a re-edit this is you know maybe blasphemous that's safe for fans but i think i think you could trim it down Honestly, I think the the new series could be trimmed down. It's ten episodes. I was watching some of it with my kids. 
today and we're like, you know, this probably could have been six or seven episodes and they could have covered the same ground and trimmed out some of the fat and, and had a, a sleeker, faster moving, more entertaining show, you know? I, I um, feel about that with every single Netflix show almost. Like, I agree totally. Yeah. Like, every I, Netflix show is like, this is four episodes too long. I think there's like, yeah, there's some level. I think there's like two shows. I think there's like that, that show you and like one other one I'm not thinking about right now that I think are perfectly written with character development because they're so heavy with character development as opposed to the story. Like, like, like some of, some of them make sense, but like, even like, even for me, Stranger Things, like all that stuff, I agree with you completely. Absolutely. I mean, I also, Sam, I I really want to know what you think about like what Paul and I are saying, because again, you know, you created a movie with with this movie in, in, in mind, not only you, but also your creative team as well. Um, you know, like not, not, not saying I want you to put us in our place, but like, you know, how do you feel, (laughs) you know, uh, you know, hearing this and also like, you know, and I also just want to know about your, um, like maybe expanding on what you just said as to like, um, you know, your feelings about it now, you know, how it could be parallel and even seeing common ground. Yeah. You know, I mean, for me, dark crystal is probably one of the most important influences in in my work, especially on Yamasan. Um, so it was one, it was a real pleasure to, to, you know, to get to meet Brian Froud, Wendy Froud, work with Toby, you know, and, and also with Heather. Um, to me, like the Frouds are the probably the closest thing you have to the visual creative inspiration of, of the original Dark Crystal, you know. Yeah. And um, so, you know, getting to actually sit down with him at dinner or, or visit Brian, you know, in Chagford, England, in, in their old you know, their old medieval house and having tea with them. You know, those are all highlights of, of my journey with Yamasong and how it connects to, to Dark Crystal, you know. And, um, but I, I think about it a lot, you know, because Yamasong has been out now for a year on, on Blu-ray and video on demand. And there's a lot of, a lot of viewer comments on, on Amazon, you know, that range from great, you know, that they, people love it to people absolutely hate it. So, I, I have a lot to think about in terms of if I do another movie with puppets, yeah. what is it that I want to do differently? Or what is it that's not working for Yamasong, but also what's not working for Dark Crystal? And so I wanted to ask you guys, do you think it's that it's not because there are no humans in it? Do you think that makes it a little less accessible for an audience because there's no person in the, in the film you can look at and go, oh, that person's me. You know, I, I relate to that character. Yeah, I wonder if that's part of it. No, um, I mean, yeah. for me, it, it. I mean, I guess it's so. I, I guess it, it, it is part of it. Um, one thing that kind of took me off is, and I think like, like when I'm watching your movie, Yamasong, um, I like how they had that intro because I, I needed that you know uh, refresher into your in that world. And I almost wish that they actually expanded that a little bit more to kind of give me a. Uh, a better introduction into that world and kind of like ease me into it. Um, but with dark crystal, I thought it was kind of hitting you over the head with it. Cause you have the narration that explains like the history of that world. But then you have that uh, interaction between Jen and the master that basically reiterates, reiterates all of that information. Like what I was saying the- is transition the film essentially. Yeah. It's just like, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's just it's just, and so I say I would say like editing I think would be a good thing to kind of 
make it flow a lot better. Um, and I know you're probably going to uh, be upset with me about this, but I, I think character design, too, I think it is too scary. And as far as character design, it's not as accessible as as it could be. Yeah. And so I, I and, and again, I admire the hell out of, out of this movie. I think it's a fantastic movie in its own right. And there's definitely people that like that, uh, you know, like everybody has a different taste. And yeah. this is yeah. perfect for some, some people that have that specific taste. But I just I don't have that taste. So I can admire it. But I don't um, you know, I'm not a, a fervent fan of it as, as as I wish I was. Yeah. I, I, well, I know that, you know, or go ahead, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I, I was going to kind of go off on like what you were saying about how it being scary and stuff like that. And, and it's weird because from what I've what I've heard and stuff is that like this labyrinth and even mirror mask were supposed to be uh, like what you called their passion projects. They weren't actually supposed to be like big blockbuster stuff. If the Hensons wanted a big blockbuster, they would make another Muppet movie. These weren't supposed to be like these new groundbreaking, like big blockbuster films. They just wanted to make these movies, have these stories be told, and for the people who want to watch them to watch them. It wasn't supposed to be like this grand appeal. Like they weren't trying to be like Transformers, where they're just like, "Look, it's Transformers by Michael Bay, and it's and it's for every yeah. it's for everybody," or trying to be for everybody. It was mo- those movies like, "Do you like Jim Henson? Do you like fantasy? Do you like dark weird stuff? This is the movie for you." Um, that's, that's, yeah. that's the thing yeah. where. My conflict is that, you know, we need more films like this that are like an original property, an original voice yeah. in theaters. And the the upsetting thing is like we're losing a lot of films like this. So that's the conflict in me is that we need films like this more but you often. You don't like them? I'm just kidding. I know. I'm just joking. But, you know, yeah, yeah. It's like, <laughs> what's your problem, then, Paul? Then like the movie. <laughs> you need yeah. to like this movie. This movie needs you to like it to then have more yeah. movie. And, and so. <laughs> I understand. You're you're like I need to have this salad to lose weight, but pizza is so good. It's, it's kind of like that with me. <laughs> In a way, yeah, yeah. So what were we this, saying? This is the this is the this is the the difficult place where we are. I feel um, as far as the the film landscape is, uh, because now you and who knows now after with or with the coronavirus and post coronavirus, how the landscape is going to change um, more drastically, but. Uh, for the past, I don't know, decade or more, things have moved in the direction of either ultra-low-budget, cheap horror films, by and large, or big tentpole blockbusters by the big studios. And you're losing a lot of those medium-range budget films like Dark Crystal was in the 80s yeah. that's a little indie, but also big enough and scaled up enough that you're you're doing incredible world-building and design and, and storytelling. And we're in a place right now where all the, the middle is basically disappearing. Yeah. And so, you know, for someone like me to come along and do Yamasong, the, the feature, you know, we did that on a $2 million, $2 million budget, which is, you know, pretty low budget for something that's fantasy related. But we're able to do it because my puppets are, you know, 18 to 20 inches tall. Yeah. And so the sets are smaller. Everything's scaled down and smaller. So that's one reason why we're able to, you know, pull off that kind of budget. Um, but just from talking to, you know, folks that, you know, informally, at least, you know, um, that I don't think they've ever released the Netflix numbers for, for the new Dark Crystal. But, you know, just in comparison, Yamasong, I was probably by minute. I had about twenty thousand dollars per minute to spend on the film total where 
Dark Crystal for their 10 episodes had about $200,000 a minute wow. to spend on their film. So you can see there's a huge difference. And it was, it was a big expense for Netflix and an expensive uh, series. So it's maybe not that surprising that Netflix hasn't announced a second season yet. Who knows if it's going to happen or not. But, um, but when I go out to like American film market in the fall to, to sell, you know, to find distributors for Yamasong, the feature, you know, I'm, I'm basically competing against a lot of low budget horror films yeah. and then international films, especially from China, trying to break into the American market. That's, that's kind of the landscape we're looking at. So I think films like, you know, having the chance to make Yamasong was, you know, I think I consider myself pretty lucky because I'm sure there are other people out there with their own indie sci-fi fantasy story that don't get a chance to make it because it's getting harder and harder to find the money and the studios to back them up to do it. That reminds me of this funny thing that uh, somebody told me once before, like what you were saying, like they're like once they go into into like what you were talking about they're like essentially all it is is like yeah chinese you know movies from china that's trying to make it out here um you know indie horror movies or or sci-fi movies or whatever james franco's doing like <laughs> <laughs> well so here's my other question for you guys is that if if it's not the an issue of whether you have a human protagonist or whatever you know when i'm writing or developing stories you know so oftentimes you know the I think kind of the, the go-to or the tr- traditional approach is you've got either a, a, a white male uh, everyman character yeah. or these days it's, you know, it's changing. It's more like Ray where it's a, a female, you know, every woman character. But still you're talking about a human as your main focus of your story. And then, then you sprinkle in to that world non-human characters yeah so that's one thing i think about is like is is it important to have a human character as your driving your driving force in the story the other thing i wonder about is um and this is a conversation i had with someone over at lucasfilm a couple months ago was how you know how important is it to have all the layers of 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 texture and depth and color with the puppets like i say in, you know in our, in our last podcast actually I feel like the strength of puppets is you've got all of that texture and, and, and detail. You can't get that with CGI unless you really have a lot of people making it happen. Yeah, and a or, huge budget. Yeah. Like you, you can't have something. That a looks, huge budget. You can't have something yeah. that looks like what's it called the gold the golden compass. Uh, is dark materials. Yeah, his dark materials. Yeah, I mean, like I mean, the, like uh, I was watching a video on YouTube today where they were doing the compare and con- contrast of the CGI of the polar bears from the golden compass to his dark materials. And it, it's 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 amazing, like the differences of, yeah. of like just time, budget, and the amount of people working on it, and they talk about all that stuff, and it's it's crazy and it's phenomenal. And like yeah, what you're saying is is like there's there's that big disconnect as opposed to like being like a, doing stop motion where you can where you have you know a huge a way bigger budget where you can spend three months on one scene. As opposed to what yeah. you're doing with the puppets, where you're doing, you know, one maybe two scenes, you know, a week. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, well, I just wonder, like, with puppets, with puppets, one thing that that we were talking, I was talking to this development guy about was, are puppets, is it too much information visually? You know, that you're looking at the puppets and your brain's processing all of this stuff. Like I'm watching Dark Crystal right now, and all the texture and the color and the layers, is it too much information? I don't know, but it, it is something you know, that I. To answer your question as being, uh, you know, very new to this universe, 
Um, I would say that if, like, I, th- I think the most logical thing would be that had made Jen a human, Jen and Kira a human, and then that they were the human character that we that are the conduit uh, for the for the audience. Now, if they had did, if they have done that, I think the movie would have done better and had a, had more mainstream appeal. But from my perspective, I would have appreciated it a lot less because it did that. Yeah, because it did something it, so obvious and it played and so, it safe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I, I really appreciate the the fact that it did like. Yeah, it, it, it resorted to all puppetry, and that's something that's, you know, I always appreciate boldness, and that's something that's very bold, to have all puppets, and be, like, to uh, have so much confidence in, like, your puppetry skills yeah. that you can basically say that it's it's a human, it's, it's, it's a real character, like Yoda. Yeah. It, I never once feel like it's a puppet. It's a real character. There's so much humanity, and nuance yeah in yoda and and that's Most, the same yeah. with with crystal there's so nuance so much character and all these puppets and i really appreciate that it, so much it, it, and i want to kind of go off on what you're saying like it's the weirdest thing like there's so much emotion and you can read yoda like like it is like a, just a person you're talking to and his eyes can't even move like that's the craziest thing to me like his yeah. his eyeballs yeah. can't even move and yet you're getting so much, uh, you know, and like, I also want to go off on what you were saying, Sam, was like that I f- actually found extremely interesting what you're talking about, like what we were asking actually is if this is this too much information process, you know, uh, being processed to towards the audience. And the thing is, like, it's a, it, it's the weirdest thing. So let's look at like there's two different properties from Jim Henson that you think that could be. That, that are considered, like, you know, really big. Look at all the Muppets. In a Muppet movie, you have about 30 Muppet characters plus human characters thrown in as well. That's, I mean, I, I would say roughly they have a probably, like, okay, let, let's just say there's about 30 characters for you to know. Yes, they had other shows and they had other ways that you can know these characters prior, but the thing is that they're in a different situation every single time. Like, you can't compare the great Muppet caper to, you can't, uh, you know, to uh, even the, the Muppet movie or Muppet Treasure Island or Muppets from Space or even the, the two newest Muppets. Like, there are all, like, several, maybe those two, they're a little bit more connected because they're like, they're like, ha, ha, they, there's actually chronolo- like chronological order where the other ones are just kind of like, did they happen? Is it canon? I don't know. Um, and so, <laughs> but like with the Muppets, you have so many characters and so many different personalities and screen time and jokes and stuff like that. And then you have Dark Crystal where there's really not that many characters. There's what there's five protagonists and then you have the Skeksis and then some other characters that just kind of pop in that don't either say anything or they don't have they don't they care they're just there to basically like what you guys were saying earlier is to world build for you the audience to be like okay this is this is a real place and they have no other ulterior motive they have no reason really to be there except for for you to basically uh process this as a living world and that's the weirdest thing it's like where you have a where you have a movie a fantasy film with maybe 10 characters as opposed to a muppet movie with 30 like, but yeah. why why is one <laughs> easier to process than the other? And that's that's I think was like my, that's where it's like well, maybe it's a writing problem or even an editing problem. I think though, comparing a Muppet film though, like it is, when you think about the characters, it still follows maybe three to five characters, and everybody else is just like cameo for jokes and kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. he's a Kermit's movie and so on. And and I think the big difference is obviously accessibility because. When this movie is funny, you're like, is that supposed to be funny? Like, you know what I mean? There's some jokes that don't land. 
Whereas a Muppet joke, like there's enough jokes that the jokes that miss don't really matter anymore. Whereas with this, it's kind of like kind of the jokes become this is one thing I'll admit as a lover of this film. It becomes off putting and kind of strange when you're like, uh, should I be laughing at that Skeksis? That's also terrifying to me right now. Yeah. I, I, I oh don't my know. God. <laughs> that, cre- that, that creepy. With, with the song too. I think that happened with the song. Nathan Fillion has a couple of gags or jokes that uh, sometimes gets a laugh, sometimes doesn't. I think when, when you do a film like what you're saying, Paul, you know, it, it feels like a sincere effort by the filmmaker to tell the story that maybe it's a little, the audience is like, I don't want to laugh because I, I don't want the, <laughs> the storyteller to feel like you're laughing at, at the storyteller, you know? Yeah. yeah. It, it, and this uh, is very, it's, it, it's like watching the room where you're just like, am I supposed to laugh at this? Are they like, 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 is this real? <laughs> yeah. But one thing I love about the series is is the the podling character Hup, Hup the paladin with the spoon is is he's so great. he's funny he's charming he's you know he has his his ups and downs in his journey too and that character is played by by my friend Victor Yared who was one of the puppeteers on the original Yamasong short and you know Victor just brings like a, a comedy and humanity to to the show which I feel that character Hup and Deep to me, are the heart and soul of, of the new series, you know? Yeah. Totally. So just getting back to the plot of the film to kind of carry us along where we're at as we can sort of like just to guide us to the next point of conversation. So yeah. Jen meets Jen meets Agra and her Ori and the crazy, that crazy set piece. That's, that's one thing about this movie that it's just the beautiful set pieces that are just so, but like knowing, you know, we've talked with Sam on the previous podcast about how what you said 30% was built and then you would... Uh, digitally add the rest of your shots whereas this everything you're seeing is both there might be some matte paintings on some of those scenes but in terms of sets the sets are all there it's just yeah. amazing to think about that these sets are physically exist the, the throne room for the castle the the area around the crystal and those in those skepsis puppets we've talked about those are big you know so yeah. it's 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 a massive undertaking so um uh, he meets Agra and then he f- figures out, he grabs the crystal when they, they get attacked by the crabs. What are they called? The Gartham? Gartham, yeah. The Gartham. So the, the, once again, thinking about the scale of those puppets, like you have the Skeksis, which are big, and then the Skeksis have these enforcers, which are very much a, a massive. I, I saw the parallels to your film with this la- massive scale sort of like built creature that's doing the destruction for the villains of the piece. So Want to talk about the Gartham? Yeah, yeah. You know, one one thing I'd say is the the orrery, that big machine. I mean, think of the mechanics and the design to make what was probably just a you know a drawing on paper come to life, where you have all these moving orbs on arms that have you know angled pieces that are like axe blades just spinning around, and and then the auger puppet has to duck sometimes to avoid you know getting hit by the by all these moving pieces, it's just, I, you know, it's just mind-boggling. I, I'm just left in awe when I watch the scene because I know all of that is real. All of that is real stuff. The movie is so, so visual and so amazing. Like, yeah. I, I do love watching this film. I, I really do like, like, like soaking in the puppetry, the, the backgrounds. I mean, yeah, like what you're saying, just the mechanics and the practical effects of this film are so unbelievable. It's, it's like watching like Blade Runner, like, 
as much as I love Blade Runner and I love enjoy watching it, sometimes I just forget that I'm watching the movie and I just like get lost with like with the insanity of what's happening of like the backgrounds and like you know the LED screen or like you know the, the screens or like you know the quote unquote screens that they use you know and like just the practical effects yeah. on it are just it's it's just so mesmerizing. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a. Uh... And Josiah, you're asking about the Gartham. What was the question about the Gartham? I lost my train of thought on that one, so it's okay. <laughs> I was just going to say, <laughs> I really Gartham, did. <laughs> I, I remember ahead. the Gartham being scary when I was a kid. I think it's partly that the alienness, but also this, they're big and giant things, you know? Um, yeah, and I think you have the, the big, the big scary skickaxes, and it's like, oh, here's something even bigger, not necessarily more scary, but like I said, they're enforcers. So this is a bad news thing if they were a bad guy for the bad guy. I've always wanted yeah. to learn puppetry, but I. If they would be like, yeah, cool, this is your opportunity, get in, I'll be like, nah, I quit. <laughs> Dream killed. <laughs> that's one thing, too. I would like, go ahead, Sam. The Skeksis, you know, um, I wondered about, you know, a lot of the stuff for the new series they, they, you know, built new, but it ended up the Skeksis they found in boxes in, in England at Pinewood Studio, I think it was. They found boxes of the old armor, so they were able to like rebuild the the one Skeksis that, or I'm sorry, the Gartham, the one Gartham at the end of the series. Not to spoil it, but when you see the Gartham appear, was rebuilt from an original Gartham that they found this in a box somewhere. So uh, (laughs) I love it. So in the film, we then meet Kira, so we finally meet the girl Gelfling, and I realize as I talk about it, one of the problems the film has it's very slow. It takes a while to get to where it wants to go. And we meet Kira like halfway through the movie. We meet the sort of love interest, whatever have you, of Kira. She saves Jen from like this pit of water. We learn that she can speak to the animals. We later learn that as a girl, she can fly. I think that comes much later. But just sort of the the difference. 33 minutes into the movie. I'm looking at it right now. So it's 33 (laughs) minutes to get to the other other main character. Yeah, that's (laughs) all. They get approached by the Chamberlain, and the Chamberlain's trying to sort of a, to make it seem like he's brokering a deal, which we learn he's just trying to get a Gelfling so that they can, we uh, later learn that they can essentially pull the essence, because they're trying to pull the essence from the podlings. We'll talk about this scene where it's uh, the, the terror of it. They put the podlings in the chairs, and they make them stare at the crystal beam, and they pull out their essence, and then they, uh, the Emperor drinks the essence and briefly gets young, but then it fades away really quickly because he needs something more powerful than this poor little podling's ability gives him. So they need a Gelfling, which at this point I, they thought were extinct or what have you. So then, yeah, so that, that, the, that was probably one of the scariest scenes in the movie when that poor, yeah. <laughs> poor little, the poor little podling after the shot, when you see his face and his hair is like all frizzed out and he's like breathing really yeah. heavy, he's like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah, it's like being it's like being Obama after eight years. You know, he came in with black hair and had gray hair by the end of being president for eight. It's true. Or you could say it's like all of us after Trump. I know. Yeah, maybe he knew what was coming. Yeah, I was going to say really quick. Quick on Kira. One thing I like about the Kira introduction is when she reaches down and and takes Jin's hand and pulls him out of the water. They have their their dream fast, you know. And I think the dream fast is a great 
a great way to kind of give you a lot of character backstory without doing a, a long narration. You know, it's it's more the two characters are kind of talking over each other, seeing each other's memories and stuff. I wish that they had done something like that in the beginning to get us up to speed and get us going with the story faster and not spend 30 minutes to get us to Kira. We could have met Kira at the 10 or 15 minute mark, you know? Because one thing I disliked about watching it again this time is you have so before you meet Kira, especially because um, Jen has nobody to talk to. He's in his head the whole time. He's like, oh, should I be doing this? I'm afraid. And the whole time. And it's like it's a little bit of that's okay, But when it's the first 30 minutes of the movie is the character talking to himself before he meets the other character. Just like, can you just move that up at least a little bit? We can get it like 10 minutes, 15 minutes sooner or something, because then and like you said, that's a great way to get that exposition that you could do that somehow much earlier and then you could understand you that's because that's a good way of getting world building exposition all these things all at once it also makes it unique to those characters but yeah it comes what a third of the way through the movie right i mean they could have they could have done something like in the beginning you could have say follow kira and jen's story kind of cutting back and forth between them or maybe jen when he sleeps at night already has a connection to her like he dreams about her or he sees her or hears her voice or something so she's this mystery force in his life and then once you meet her you you've already known that she was coming into his story and that she already had a presence versus just being a brand new character at the 30 minute mark you know yeah yeah totally like even if he doesn't have that hint, just some hint that there's something there from an audience perspective to tease us at least because yeah. then yeah. yeah so um what another puppet I want to talk about is the the land striders. The oh, so yeah. the way the way those were designed um uh, do you I'm sure Sam you know the story of how those came to be, right? Yeah, yeah. With Toby Fraud. So Toby Fraud like the one the, for the film Jim Henson brought in a lot of circus performers and people like that there were mimes and things all about motion and one of the performers just brought his stilts in one day in their rehearsal space as they were developing different things and trying different things out and experimenting. And then Toby Froud saw this performer on stilts and had this character in his head. And he then created the Landstrider, which then became, instead of just two stilts, stilts on the legs and stilts on the arms to create this, yeah. again, another, we're talking, we, I, every time we talk about a puppet, there's like the next scale up. I forget, oh, there's another scale up. That's right. <laughs> so you have, That's right. The even taller puppet in the Landstriders. And you met Brian. So Trout, be the... right? I think Toby Toby hadn't been born yet or was a baby. Oh, I said Toby, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. My apologies to the no, Proud family. It is Brian, yeah. So so yeah, who Toby wasn't family born yet. Landstriders, Josiah. Who would be the Landstrider in your family in terms of scale? In terms of scale? Yeah, remember the how you car? said uh, the car. The car is the landstrider. Because okay. you ride a landstrider, you drive the car. <laughs> the car is the landstrider. I would like to say, as you know, my dog Akira, he's tall with long legs, but he's probably like Gelfling scale, and I'm the Skeksis, so Okay. <laughs> I do I do love the landstriders though. Although when you watch it, I don't think it's a comfortable ride at all. I've ridden on a horse a few times and that's you know, it takes some getting used to, but the landstriders, when they move forward, you see the puppet move really far forward and then they're thrown back and then they're thrown forward. It's like a really hard ride. I think to actually ride the land strider. Yeah. That, that was one of those moments where the, the, the ambition didn't live up to the, I mean, the land strider by itself, but once they ride it, yeah. Like you can see that that's not a real person. 
that can respond to how it moves. You know what I mean? Like that's where, that's where digital puppeteering could enhance that effect where you have, you could puppeteer a land strider by itself and then puppeteer the, I'm sure they did this in the new series. I don't even recall puppeteer then the, the Gelfling riding separately and then marry those two together later in the computer to create a much more realistic effect. Whereas in this one you have, you know, it's like when I would strap a, like a He-Man figure to my cat as a kid and my cat would run across the room and He-Man like would wobble and then fall off. That's kind of what it looked like. Yeah. I'll have to look at the new series. I know they did have a Landstrider scene or two. Uh, I'm sure you're right though. I think, I don't think they built Landstriders for the new one. I think it was all digital or maybe the close-ups might have had a digital or a real component for close-ups, but I think the wide shots were digital. Okay, and that makes sense because even watching, like I said, I watched the making of just recently, and they said it was a challenge to do just because because the they were so high up, they had to have the puppeteer that's up on those stilts on a safety wires and a guide wider. So you need a very elaborate set above that. So you need all this like infrastructure and like basically a crane to hold those wires just to have the safety harness for a couple shots of the land strider. As cool as it is, it's it's like where you know is it worth that trouble for that uh, effect? Yeah. Well, when I you Particularly, know working in, in puppets in general, you know, whenever you meet a new client, oftentimes you have to explain to them, you know, the puppeteers underneath the puppet inside of the inside of the piece of furniture, or they're above the puppet if it's marionettes, you know, and, and people forget that there has to be a space allocated for your puppeteer. When you watch Dark Crystal, just pick any scene and, and ask yourself. Where are the puppeteers? You know, where are they hiding them? Because they have to, you know. So what's the creative creative way of hiding them? It's an important thing to figure out. The podling getting drained right now. I'm watching him getting all of his life sucked out. <laughs> his, skin, his skin sinking in. That's all practical, too. You know, we do it. It'd be digital now. But, I mean, his, his cheekbones sinking in, his eyes sinking in. All of that was just, they had to figure that out practically. I'm sure it was some kind of balloon system or something where they you know suck the air out so then just sunk in as the time went by you know for some reason i imagined um replacing him with beaker i don't know why that image when it came in my head but (laughs) oh totally yeah i I can see that (laughs) if if it's gonna happen to any muppet it's gonna be beaker (laughs) yeah true true (laughs) so in terms of the plot of the film we find ourselves basically in the catacombs of the castle and the, as they're making their way to try to find the crystal, get into the crystal chamber and uh, Chamberlain again approaches, there's a skirmish and a fight and um, he gets, he captures Kira and the, the Gartham attack and Jen is able to like escape through the wall when it breaks. And he actually ends up in the wall. It's, it's a cool like a, a little sequence there in terms of the action where he ends up in the shaft for the crystal. So he's not like beneath it in that chamber, like crawling way up. And I instantly thought of um, a film that came later, obviously a few years in the eighties was Die Hard and the elevator shaft. It's like the dark crystal equivalent of the Die Hard elevator shaft. Uh-huh. So I completely forgot about that scene until I was watching it again. I was like, man, it's all in the dark. And it's all about him just being lost. And then the, the glowing eyes and then the sound design of the clacking claws is all you need to tell you he's surrounded by the Gartham, you know? And this is where, like, the movie really is, it's, it's moving now, like, really, truly, like, there's, when they show up at the castle, it's like, this is the actual story functionally is happening. Like, this, yeah. a lot of the stuff is just getting to this place, 
And it just takes a while to get there. And I personally enjoy it and find it interesting. But at the same time, I even admit that it's it's a little bit of a slog to get there. Like I, I shared with uh, Sam earlier today via text, you know, as he was rewatching. And I was like, yeah, I was rewatching it with I was my daughter, but she's not interested in this one because this one moves too slow. But she likes the newer one because of the pace of it. It's more to her, you know, three-year-old sensibility as opposed to this movie. When I was three years old, this was right up my alley. But a three-year-old today is a different kind of kid, I guess. Yeah, it's. I think it's it's just it's it's more say contemporary storytelling. You 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 get into the action faster. You, you don't spend as much time setting things up. And this is the first one. If if say Jim Henson had done a sequel to Dark Crystal. I'm sure they could have jumped into the action a lot faster because you don't have to worry about setting up the world so much because you've already done it, you know? Yeah, and I like this part. There's a There starts to get a tension built as we're we're learning of that idea of that convergence when the, the Skeksis can then live forever, whatever that means. And the, the mystics are moving slowly towards the castle. And there's that part where the one Skeksis gets killed. It's my favorite little moment in the movie. He gets killed and he vanishes. And then the mystics... The, mist, the equivalent mystic vanishes. The other mystics all look, turn back, and start walking again. And it just creates yeah. like a – this point of the movie, it creates a pacing that the rest of the movie did not have, where it's like there's tension building towards like are they going yeah. to meet this goal? And it's, it wasn't there. And then be, because the mystics are going, it starts to build, build, build when it hadn't been doing that really up until when they, uh, they show up in the catacombs of the castle. Yeah. No, it's true. It's it, it gets you into that. Now you've got that really tangible uh, ticking clock. You know that something bad is going to happen if they don't get to their goals in time. So that's much more driving force than in the beginning, which is more introduction and, and just immersing you in the world. And I'd say the Netflix series is similar, you know, just re watching it, rewatching, at least uh, popping through the, the whole series. The story really doesn't take off, I don't think, till I'd say the fifth episode or so. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's 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 mystery and, and, and a murder happened and someone disappeared or whatever. But you don't get that that ticking clock element again till fifth or sixth episode in. And then it really just keeps moving from there. I actually agree. Um I feel like um, what you guys were talking about earlier was just like the beginning being so slow and, and you don't really see like, you know, the, I know a, a protagonist for 32 minutes. It, it's kind of like the same thing with, with the Netflix show. You're just like, okay, I, it, where it's, it's confusion, not a lot of uh, understanding as to like, you know, I, I would say if you had never seen Dark Crystal prior to the Netflix show, you would not know really who the good guys are, who, who you know, or in anything until like yeah, episodes, episodes in, and it's it's a little annoying in the, in that in that front. Yeah. But you know that's but that's just that's just me though. I do wonder if they had a directive from Netflix that said you have to write ten episodes or eight to ten episodes. We can't we can't just have five. Yeah, you know we can't just have a handful. Yeah, I'm probably. It's funny. It feels um, like it watching it. I was tempted to watch the um, Netflix series, but I knew it'd probably be a bad, a bad idea having not, having not seen the movie yet, because I was worried that something would happen in the Netflix series that would kind of turn me off to it, and then I wouldn't go back and watch the movie. Yeah. Because uh, when I saw, um, for years, uh, Avatar The Last Airbender, 
so many people recommending that to me, that, the, the cartoon series for oh, years. Oh God! Please, please and, choose your please choose your next few words very carefully. <laughs> okay, well, my first experience with that was the M Night Shyamalan uh, movie. Oh no! And oh yeah. I saw that movie and it was horrible. It was like yeah. I it was I had a hard time just dealing with it, <laughs> and so I completely wrote that property off for like a uh, decade, and then I had a friend that like was so insistent on me watching it. Good friend. And I watched it. It's like, honestly, like the best, like the best animated series of all time. Yes, thank you. Like, thank you. Uh, yeah. Like either I would say maybe even better than Batman the animated series in some oh, respects. I, I a thousand percent you know? do. I mean, Batman the animated series is I, great. It's just not a. It's not a. It's not a story. It's just. It's just. It's just you know villain of the week where Avatar Last Airbender is a story. There's character growth. There, there are repercussions where Batman the animated series had zero. Like. Uh, Avatar Last Airbender ex- exceeded what, I, honestly, any American show has done in almost all anime. I would say there's maybe two anime I think are better shows, like Cowboy Bebop, you know, and um, uh-huh. and uh-huh. Uh, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood, possibly. Uh, but even then, that filler episode sucked. But, like, oh, man, it, it's, it's just up there, yeah. I think, in, like, the best. I think it is probably the best animated series of all time. And, yeah, sorry to... to no, right. you're totally Take fine. But no, I just that's a thing with with the Dark Crystal. I was worried about my exposure to it because I didn't want it to refrain me or like give me any kind of bias on seeing the original movie, which which happened and and was kind of damaging actually because I, yeah. I missed out on this really great property because of M Night Shyamalan. Yeah, <laughs> and I think it's comparable yeah. too, like what we're talking about with all these different characters and this whole world and stuff like that. Like where a show like. Um, Avatar Last Airbender, which the first season, if you watch it, is heavily target to- targeted towards children. Like, heavily. Mm-hmm. Like, the dark stuff doesn't even really come in until, like, season two, with you know. And, um, and where this movie, and even the Netflix show for Dark Crystal, I think that there is amazing stuff in it. And it is easy- easily followed, but the thing is, is that there, there's, there's a disconnect. Uh, either po- probably, maybe it was a technical thing. Maybe it was just you know the lack of of what they were able to do with with the stuff um, you know with the story with what they wanted to do back then. But there there is something that is off about it. Is it is is it great? Is it amazing looking? Is it is it well made? Yes, a thousand percent. Both the Netflix series and the film. But is there something that people would uh, will love? Yes, absolutely. Is it something for a broader audience like what we basically have been talking about this entire time? Um, that's disconnected. Yeah. And, and that's a weird thing of like, how do you fix it? Is it an editing issue? Is it just a straight up writing issue or like, like what is it? And I think what it is, is like, uh, to me, I think it's going to be a mixture of both of those things with dark crystal, both the Netflix series and the movie where you have an amazing world. It, it just, I think the hand holding. I think if you were to compare this movie to Willow, like it, 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 it's, oh, yeah. It's it's weird. Willow is so easily followed, and I think just as, almost as intricate as this movie is as well. Where you you have a villain, and you have them having you know searching for one thing, you know, and you're going through and meeting different people, and it's you know, and you have two, and you have two, you have two main characters who basically rely on each other, and they go through you know some crazy stuff. But Willow to me is easier to watch, and I think it's a less. I don't. I don't think it's anywhere near as as good or even well made as um, as Dark Crystal is. But the thing is that I l- I like it. I like it more only because I follow it more, and it does 
capture me for some reason, even though technically I don't think it's that great. I don't even think it's that well-directed or written or even edited. I, but the thing is, it's weird. I enjoy watching Willow more than Dark Crystal, and it makes insane sense to me. You know, I have, to I, think... and, I have to go back and watch it. I haven't watched it in so long. Now that we're talking about comparing and contrasting, I've got to, I've got to look at it just to just to see, you know, what, yeah. what my impression is. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Paul, what so were you saying? It's, oh, so it, it's interesting that you compare it to Willow. Is that throughout the years, even like just talking with Josiah, I was very interested in Dark Crystal, like the characters, and like it really intrigued me. Whereas I've seen Willow only one time in the theater, and I was kind of done with it. I didn't have any of the urge to see it again. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with because it's so accessible. It's not, yeah. to me, it's not interesting because it's so accessible. No, absolutely. Whereas Dark Crystal, like even now, you know, I just saw Dark Crystal, but even now just talking about it, it's like I need to see it again and see it through a different perspective. Like I need to, um, I guess, immerse my, myself in that world uh, again just so I get – you know, maybe I won't be, feel so overwhelmed, or maybe I'll be more involved in it if I yeah. see it the second time. Appreciate it more than I did the first time. Can I say one more thing? Like maybe comparing this to like, you know, let's let's compare this to Labyrinth, where Labyrinth is very messed up and gets very trippy, like really trippy. But the thing is, I think Labyrinth to me is a lot more engaging, is because it has these weird music. Uh, music moments. It's a, I mean, it's a musical. That's, yeah, it's, it's and I and I think it's like a different genre. They're fantasy, but that's a musical. You know, yeah. that's where that's a big, big difference. And and I think that's why, like, that's why I'm saying, like, with audience and oh, with audience, um, you know, with grabbing audience and you know, and also it, it being something that stands the test of time. I think I would much rather watch Labyrinth over uh, Dark Crystal any day. But I'm so glad and happy with my memories of Dark Crystal. But the thing is, like. I, I do enjoy Labyrinth more um, because I, I just it brings some other things out of me like music and, you know, and like kind of singing, sing along to it. it. I think it's just a completely different experience. Like and also think watching has, this Jennifer Connelly, too. So you have a human main <sighs> character. And I wonder if that has a part. And man, I had the biggest crush on her. I still have the, the biggest day. crush on oh. her. She's still I think we all... stunning. Stunning. Yeah, true. <laughs> um and just well, thinking about what sam sorry i was gonna say, just say i'm watching the the part where kira's being drained and i'm just saying i wonder if it would have been different if say you cast daryl hannah as kira and then john bon jovi as Jin. if that would have made a difference <laughs> john bon jovi's career would have been different i guarantee you that <laughs> <laughs> Um, but just watching, I, I like that casting though. That is some fantastic eighties <laughs> casting by Sam right there. That is a whole another podcast of like recasting movies, <laughs> like from yeah. So anyway, but for me watching it again, I really think um, you know I understand what everyone sees is like the flaws in it because I see some of them too. But I also uh, think what Jim Henson really wanted was, uh, in part, an experience, almost like a yeah. tone poem, like. It's almost like it's weirdly like kind of like a Terrence Malick film or something where it's where you have these, you know, these landscapes. It's like um, and just this you know, like um, like Days of Heaven. I've ever seen that film and or uh, just you just have these shots of like the planes and everything just slow and quiet. I think that's what that first big hunk of the film is. 
and then you have the action sort of to accelerate the plot. And I think yeah. there's a little bit of a conflict with those things, but I think that's what Jim Henson and they, they wanted to do. They wanted to make a film that you kind of experienced in that way, you know, and how you react to it's sort of whatever to you feel about it. But I think that's what they're going for. And I think that's where the film is obviously successful because you have some very visceral reaction to it in that way, because the world brings you in that even if you sort of are bored by it or dislike the plot, the world is undeniably a real place. And that's yeah. where the beauty of Jim Henson and just about everything he did, even the Muppets, part of why they worked is they were so real, even though they were so fake, because yeah. they were, they might've been fake looking, but they were totally real in terms of like how they sort of, from movement Move, personality well, it, it's yeah it's you know? personality and body language that these puppeteers are have just mastered and, and and that's the thing is it's not it's not the pup it's not the muppet or the puppet it it's always going to be the puppeteer or the muppeteer who who brings it to life that's and i think that's honestly the only yeah. reason why yoda works honestly oh yeah yeah i mean you had some of the best puppeteers bringing him to life and you know and specifically if it was a, you know, like a mid-level puppeteer, it would have been the same. Yeah, and, and case in point, I mean, look at Yoda in um, Empire Strikes Back versus Yoda in The Phantom Menace when it came out in theaters. Everybody hated the CG, and it, it, and it, took, it took me out of it, too. And even when I was a kid, I'd go, that's, that's not Yoda. I don't like this. What is this? And I wasn't even processing it correctly. I mean, of course, I'm also younger than both of you, know, you Paul, uh, uh, Paul and Josiah. Like, when I... When I when I saw Phantom Menace, I was ten years old, and I even then I was just, old guy too. Yeah, and I was just and I was just like, I don't, I don't like this. Something's off. I don't. That's not Yoda. Who's that? I don't know what that is. Like it, it's that's the thing. It's like, Yoda works because of the Muppets and the people who, who embody him, as opposed to a CG character. That's just so Tyler. We were, we, we were old enough to understand why we hated it, so that's the difference. Yeah, but like, I'm time. just saying, even though as a kid, though. When you have the person, you know, the, these these puppeteers and Muppeteers are just, they're, they're amazing. They're absolutely phenomenal. They are literally, it is, it is, it is acting. They're not doing anything technical. They are just acting with their hands and bringing life and that's what they're doing. It is. But it is technical because it's such a technical form of acting. It's almost like, I think Sam would know what the, speak to this. It's like theater acting where you have to hit your mark and do yeah. these different things. It's oh, very, there's a really technical side to it. And, and then, but yeah, but that, but what totally makes it work and what makes these worlds truly believable is that performance. So the technical stuff aside, because, you know, whether you're watching this big, heavy monitor hanging over the side of Skeksis or you're watching four monitors today on the modern Skeksis, it's when it comes down to it, it's that performance. You know, it's Frank Oz as I think he was the Chamberlain, correct, in this one. And just, um, you know, and Frank Oz and Yoda and, and just the, the way watching the way that these characters they're inanimate objects it's just like yeah. it's one of my daughter plays with with a toy it's just a toy and then when she moves it it comes to life this is that on just an unbelievably artful and perfected scale that's the ma that's some magic of it that's the magic with the puppets is when when they become believable and you're not even thinking about them being puppets anymore they're just characters in the story that's that's when you when you hit it you know yeah and there's a part there's a particular Go Muppet ahead, that there's a particular Muppet that that's very 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 to me especially but like uh, and they talked about him and, and they brought him up a, a lot especially Frank Oz did in a uh, in a in a doc I can't remember this documentary um, but the the fact of of like Snuffleupagus 
which is honestly one of the hardest Muppets. Um, it, it, it is hard to uh, invoke uh, because like uh, other other Muppets can move, have hands and 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 whatnot. They can adjust their faces, like um, you know Kermit's face being smushed in, you know, to to symbolize you know you know anger or annoyance and stuff like that. Like you know moving his eyes a little bit. Snuffleupagus is a big is a big Muppet, can I, you know, controlled by two or three people. And where only his his snout and his eyes can move, and everything else is just like it, it's hard to invoke any emotion. But for some strange reason, I, I, you guys go and watch Sesame Street. Snuffleupagus is so is so um, has so much body language in like the weirdest way because it's so hard to. It's all they can do is just move him side to side, and that's it. But you still feel him, and it's still and the Muppeteer and the Muppeteer is also giving his voice, so you still. Are hearing him, and for some reason, this big blob is still—they're able to show emotion just from body language, even though this thing is huge and is so heavy. But like honestly, that is the yeah. hardest—that that, that is like the hardest sell for for any of them. If you look at the all the Muppets out there, he should not be invoking anything, but you—he does. I love stuff. I love Mr. Snuffleupagus. Sorry. It's, you know, it's, it's a real testament to the it is a testament to the performer. That's that's Marty Robinson. He's been playing Snuffy yep. for years. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, when when I when I build a puppet and then I put it in a puppeteer's hand, you know, especially the really good ones, you know, they start playing with it immediately. And you, you start to figure out what your character, what your puppet can do, you know, what what nuances in the performance can you get? You know what what uh, you know, if they have a squishy face like like Hup in the new Dark Crystal. He can he can you know scrunch his snout and pull his mouth in. He can stick his tongue out, like some really fun, playful kinds of behaviors that yeah. you can get out of the puppet. And I'm sure that's something that you know Victor discovered as he when he first put the puppet on and started playing with it. And I'm sure there was probably even some back and forth with the builders and asking for some modifications. The one that um, the one that I heard was really great was Brea um, Alice Denae. Um, her she had. They have this, I guess they call it nunchuck controller, like for video games that are used for controlling like the facial expressions and stuff in the animatronics. And she started playing with that and getting these subtle eye movements back and forth and stuff. If you watch Brea's performance in the new Dark Crystal, you'll see some very subtle like head turns and eye turns, yeah. eye movements and things. That just that's that's all hundred percent performance, you know, with with the builders helping to to give them the tools they need in the physical puppet. Yeah, that's really cool. It's just the progression from what we've talked about with things in the Dark Crystal to the modern version of how it is. And it still comes down to the same thing, a performance by a human being making something come to life. Absolutely. Yeah. So any final thoughts on the Dark Crystal as we wrap it up? Um, yeah, my, big I mean, question is, my big question is, are the... You know, where where did the where did the Earth come from? You know, is there you know, do they come from another another planet, presumably, or are they cosmic beings? That's that's what I've always wondered. And you know, the new series hasn't really they gone don't. into any real development. Yeah, we don't really yeah, it's an origin, but we still don't know where they came from. We just know they came from somewhere else. And obviously at the end, I, I wrote in my notes that the Skeksis and the Mystics reverge and they merge into group. Of my first thought, having watched this again, they kind of have this like tree-like group sort of face going on. Oh, yeah. yeah. See, I, I would I, I would like it if they actually just 
were always there, and but they but it was a lie that they kind of spread, and that the narrator is an actual like other being from the earth who didn't know as well. But you know that's just me, as opposed to just a narrator. Yeah. I, I think it would be cool if they were just like, no, we were always here. We just wanted you. I don't know. It's like they just they wanted to be known as like <laughs> gods and stuff, like Cortez. I feel like you know. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I'm saying just like Cortez, you know, they were like they thought he was a god, and he was like, "You're right, I am a god." <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say to me, it's it's what'd be cool is if if they did a modern version, you know, when you see the the Skeksis and the Mystics merge, if we could see some actual like morphing happening where you see the the bodies morph into each other versus kind of a cross dissolve with a little bit of you know optical effect glow on it. Yeah, I think that could yeah. be cool. Um, yeah, you, that was that, that's very much the 1980s version of that kind of transition, right? You know, right, it's like, right. yeah. And the other, I was gonna say, I think I read in, I think it's one of the the Dark Crystal books. It's made the the big one that has all the Froud art in it. That the Erskex were exiles of some sort, like they had been kicked off of their world and then found Thra, and then settled there. Mm. But I, I, I don't remember exactly. But I, I've always had that thought in my mind that they were somehow. You know, they were fleeing another world and came there originally as refugees or exiles. Hmm. Any, you know, any thoughts, Paul? You know, I really do like how the, the mystics and the sexies that they merge together and that they need to find balance between the two. Um, and I think that's a really interesting concept because especially during that time, you had, it's always like good versus bad. It was always that dichotomy. Like, you have Optimus Prime and Megatron, or you have, like, Skeletor and He-Man. So it's always, you know, very binary like that. And I like how it's the merging of the two, because it's like kind of unique uh, and very different from that time. Yeah. Yeah. You get yeah. that sense throughout the movie, like, yeah, when they're, whenever that one Skeksis, you know, gets cut and you see the Mystic's hand bleed, like, oh, the good guys and the bad guys are connected. They're somehow kind of one. And it makes you kind of question who's good and who's bad that yeah. in that kind of scenario. And like, there's so many different concepts and, and, and ideas and themes in this movie that I really do appreciate. And I think, I think it really warrants another viewing. And I think in time, I'll probably warm up to it more and really like it and appreciate it more than I did the first time. And, you know, I feel kind of bad uh, saying that I dislike it. I just, no, you know, but, uh, but uh, that isn't, that isn't Ernest, uh, initial reaction that I, I honestly want on this podcast. And I think other people should know, like, that's like with me, I don't want to say I don't like this movie. Like, I, I feel like, you know, it, it's like, now I feel like a parent, like, you know, who's, who's like scolding their child being like, listen, I love you. I just don't like you right now. <laughs> like, like I, I, yeah. and it sucks because I don't want to feel that way as well, because I have some great memories with this. It is a piece of art. Like this is great filmmaking. This is great. This is an amazing product, but for some reason, revisiting it doesn't. I think it's because, like with you, it's something fresh and something that's, you know, you're seeing something that's older and that, that you know we've evolved so much, especially with puppetry and everything else. Where me, it's this is coming from. I'm me battling, you know, nostalgia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. That sounds like a good movie, Tyler versus Nostalgia. I want to see it. I would, I would see it. I'd pay fifteen bucks. <laughs> <laughs> Screw oh, yeah. you, kid. <laughs> so, so any other uh, final thoughts uh, before we kind of wrap things up? Um, you know, I, I love, I love dark crystal. Cause it was, it was my, you know, my inspiration for doing film with puppets. I, I kind of, that's my touchstone and I keep yeah. going back to it. You know, and, um, 
if, if they didn't ever make it, then, you know, I, who knows what I'd be doing right now. So I, I appreciate it. And the Hensons and the Frouds, you know. Actually, I want to ask you a question, Sam. Um, yeah. If you were to, you know, we kind of mentioned how like the first 30, 40 minutes were kind of slow. Like, what would you do to kind of hmm. ramp it up a little bit or make it run smoother to essentially improve the film? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably, you know, re-edit it so that it has more action in the beginning. You know, maybe start out with, you know, it would be actually, now that I think about it, what would be a great intro, this would, wouldn't be just re-editing, it'd have to be shooting stuff, but start out with, you know, the Skek, or the, the Gartham attacking the, you know, Podling village, mm. and taking Podlings away, and Kira hiding, that kind of thing. And then you go into, you know, the introducing the Skeksis and then you go to the mystics and then Jin's, you know, having these dreams about this, this woman, he doesn't know who she is, but then he goes, you know, after his, his master dies and goes looking for the crystal meets Agra, then meets Kira. And then, then things really start to take off faster that way. I think um, I like that a lot, probably, you know, yeah. Start off with more action and, yeah, you need to, and yeah, letting, totally and letting the audience learn about the world without so much heavy narration. Yeah. Agreed. I agree. I feel like the '80s just love narration so much. Like, I mean, look at that Blade Runner that cut with the with the narrator, and you're just like, no. <laughs> and it's like yeah. the thing. To be fair, though, it's also kind of like a like a sort of a trope of fantasy. So this film to be like almost legitimized as fantasy at that time, it's like, oh, we need this narration. It's almost like you feel obligated. And, and the narration actually was something that they went back and did after they had the film and they added that in yeah. to sort of make it make a little bit more sense for the audience. Cause it's like, Oh, you're just in this world now. Um, so my final thought is, I just love that. Like Lord of the Rings was like, did the exact opposite. They're just like, cool. These rings were made. They were given to these people. Then these people, then these people, then a big war. Now, fuck you. Figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, my final thought is uh, just watching this again, like kind of what Paul said, there's a part in the film where, where they're in the chamber and it's kind of the history of what happened to their people, which we're now, you can see in the, the dark crystal series on Netflix. And she, Kira doesn't know what writing is. She goes, what is writing? And Jen responds with the words that stay. And I love that line as a writer, but I, that is what this film is for me. This film is the words that stay. This film is, it is art. It is important. You can maybe dislike it in certain things, but you cannot deny the importance of it in terms of filmmaking. It was groundbreaking for what it was. I think I, I still love the story despite its flaws and I love how it comes together. And I pretty love like the last probably 30 minutes of this film, but that is what it is. It is the words that stay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I love, I love that line. Well, thank you so much, Sam. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, man. Really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing oh, yeah, your expertise on on uh, the Dark Crystal. Be sure to go back and listen to the Yamasong episode because that's a film you probably don't know because Sam made it. It's it's a the, it, it's the modern version of the Dark Crystal. It's the indie version. It's a film. It's a lot of the techniques and things. It's the really is the evolution of it, and it's it's a really unique and interesting film. So be sure to check out our episode on that and check out his film Yamasong on Amazon Prime and watch the Dark Crystal again and. Let us know what you think of yeah. the Dark Crystal. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, thanks again, Sam. And all the information for Yamasong, uh, both the uh, the short 
and the and the feature film will be in the article on our website. And um, alrighty, guys, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening in. You can check out all of our shows and offerings on. Our website, thegrandgeekgathering.com, where we have our seven other podcasts, our articles, our videos, and so much more. And uh, also, you can find our podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Stitcher, and any podcast app. If you can't find it, let, let us know. And also, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I also stream on Twitch. Do you guys have any other plugs or anything else to plug in? No, I just want to say stay safe, stay healthy. No, that's bit about it. You know, check out uh, Ibex Puppetry, Handmade Puppet Dreams. Ibex is Heather Henson's company where I've been working as a producer, and we do a lot of different programs. We're especially doing a lot of programming now because people are home on lockdown. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're doing puppet workshops. We're doing screenings of films. Uh, we're going to do. We're going to start doing a spotlight on filmmakers. So we've done some uh, behind the scenes uh, interviews of some of our filmmakers. So I think the month of May, we're going to be highlighting a lot of those guys. So uh, there's a lot lot to see. So I'll, I'll include links, and I'll send them over and uh, check those out and watch the Amazon. Yes. Awesome. Cool. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, so stay safe. Hide your kids. Hide your wives. And uh, <laughs> sorry. It's <laughs> an old reference. That's such an old reference. Oh. Anyways, uh, have a wonderful week. And uh, GGG. What's on the silver screen? I got some takes you wouldn't believe. Grab.